Genesis chapter 15. And I am really, really pumped today. Um, I don't want to spoil why I'm pumped today, right? It might, might be behind me. That's one of the reasons I'm excited. But here, here's the main reason I'm excited. With communion, with prayer, I'm excited to celebrate God's faithfulness. Because that's really what we're going to be doing today. You're going to see. You are going to see God's faithfulness through what we cover today. Um, and I am fired up to do it. And one of those ways that you're going to see that is um, through 1 Samuel. Church, I can never believe when we start a new series because I spend a lot of time preparing for these series, sometimes months at a time preparing for when these series are going to come out, just thinking and praying and reading. I've read 1 Samuel so many times, so I can't believe it's here, and I'm so excited. Um, I'm just really on fire. But I'm guessing for some of you, when we say we're going to do 1 Samuel, you're not as excited as I am right out of the gate. And there might be a couple of reasons for that. For one, many of you, and this is okay, many of you kind of have a hard a harder time understanding the Old Testament than maybe the New Testament. Does that, does that seem fair for some people in the room? The Old Testament's harder to understand. It's harder to understand why you need it, why we should be reading it, what's going on in the Old Testament. And listen, I get that. I remember when my, my mom was older in age, like she was in her 60s, and she basically said, in the churches that I grew up in, they never talked about the Old Testament. They acted like we didn't need it. Right? And so some of you kind of grew up that way. Like the Old Testament doesn't really matter anymore because we have the New Testament, or you can think of it as the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Tony talked about the New Covenant that we have in Christ. But the Old Testament is really important. So I, I'm hoping by the end of, the, uh, end of today, you'll start to see why the Old Testament ma- matters so much and you'll begin to fall in love with it if you haven't already. And then I think, se- secondly, um, some of you have just absolutely no idea what First Samuel is about. Right? You're like, First Samuel, I may have read that one time at some point when I did my straight-through Bible reading or I've never read it in my entire life. Listen, it's okay because we're going to spend 30 weeks in 1 Samuel. You're going to know what this book is about by the end of it, right? And so you may think 30 weeks in 1 Samuel. Listen, there's like 30 chapters in it. We're going to be doing a chapter a week. So we're going to actually be flying through the book. We're going to go through big sections of 1 Samuel at a time. But by the end, you're going to, you're going to know a lot about this book. And, and what 1 Samuel is, is it's a book of history, right? That's really what it is. It's a book of history. And, and it is kind of boring. I mean, it's boring. I, I, I say, well, it does have stories about kings, and wars, and crazy ambition, and, and treachery, and, and murder, and deception, and political intrigue, and sexual intrigue, and complicated char- characters, and heroes, and villains, and a guy that literally fights lions, bears, and unstoppable giants. So yeah, it's, it's boring, right? It's boring. So um, I'm excited. I can't wait to dive into this over the next 30 weeks or so. But before we do, what we're really going to do is, if you're going to understand this book of history, this historical book, you need to understand the history that brought us here. So that's what today's going to be. I want you to see the scope of the Bible. I want you to see why the Old Testament's so important, why it's a display of God's faithfulness, and how we got to the book of 1 Samuel, because then it'll make more sense. So I'm just going to warn you today, um, I'm going to be doing a little bit more teaching today than preaching. Now, those things kind of go together, right? But you know how passionate I get when I'm preaching. Um, I'll probably get passionate today. I already am. We haven't even started yet, right? But this, we're just going to really walk through some history. So for those of you that aren't into history, man, pay attention because it's still going to be super valuable for all of us as we, as we walk through this today. And, and what this is really going to do is it's, it's 1 Samuel, the Old Testament's going to come for alive, alive for us, and we're just going to start to fall in love, if we haven't already, with God's faithfulness to us even when we aren't faithful. So this is where we're going to start walking through. We're going to go all the way back to Genesis, and I know you guys are in Genesis 15, but before we open up Genesis 15, I'm going to start in Genesis 12. 
in a, in a place that we've talked about a lot. So there was this guy named Abraham, if you remember. Abraham's really important to understanding the whole scope of the Bible. We probably should have started in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 with the fall, right? But we're going to start with Abraham. The fall happened. Sin came into the world. So God sees all of that. He's going to start his showing us how faithful he is. He comes to a man named Abraham. In this passage, his name is Abram. His, God changes his name to Abraham. And he says, listen, if you'll go to the land I'm going to show you, which, by the way, is the land, land of Canaan. Remember that, the land of Canaan. If you go to the land I'm going to show you, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to bless everyone who blesses you, and I'm going to give you a family that's going to become a nation, and that, and that family, through your family line, I'm going to bless every nation on earth and every family on earth. Now, here's the thing. If you remember, Abraham was old. His wife had been barren her whole life. They could not have children. So they're old, they can't have children, and then God says, I'm going to give you a family. And through that family, I'm going to bless every nation on earth. What God tells us in places like the book of Acts and the book of Galatians is this was God proclaiming the gospel to Abraham. When he says, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to, uh, what's the word, with, with every nation? Dang it, give me just a second. I'm going to bless every nation. There you go. I'm going to bless every nation on earth. Acts and Galatians tell us that that was God preaching the gospel to Abraham. Now, Abraham did not know that that was the, the gospel being preached to him, right? He didn't know it was going to lead to Christ, but that was the promise that he was giving to Abraham. And so this is the beginning of what we're going to call God, God's covenant with his people. Now, we see that, that covenant continued in Genesis 15. So read with me in Genesis 15. We're going to start in verse 13, Genesis 15 through 13. And we're going to see, as, as we walk through this, God's going to unfold this covenant more and more, what it really means. So in Genesis Chapter 15, we're going to start in verse 13, and we're going to read through verse 21. 15, 13, it says this. Then the Lord said to Abram, which again is later his name changed to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So what's God talking about there? What what book of the Bible is God referencing there? Exodus, right? That's the, when they're going to be in the land of Egypt. We're going to talk about that in a minute. This is way before, and he's telling them exactly what's going to happen. Hundreds of years before, verse 15. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, he's talking to Abraham, and you shall be buried in a good old age. So he's like, you're, gonna, you're not going to see these things. You'll be buried with your fathers in the, land, in, in the good land. But then what's going to happen? In verse 16, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, meaning come back to Canaan, in the fourth generation, the land that God has now, Abraham's now in Canaan. He says, You're going to come, they're going to come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So that seems like a weird thing to stick in there in that covenant. So here's what's going on. He's saying, when he says fourth generation, he means way down the road, you're going to come back to this land. Your people are going to come back to this land. And not only am I, we're going to see, what he's saying here is I'm going to give them this land, but I'm also going to use your family to bring judgment on the Amorites. And the Amorites are kind of a bucket thing. You see the Canaanites are the Amorites of all the people that live in the land of Canaan. Because here's the thing. All the people in the land of Canaan, we're going to talk about all the ites. I'm going to call them the ites, the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Hivites. We're going to talk about all of them. They all come from the line of Noah. They all come from his son, Ham. They all should know the Lord. They should all serve the Lord. They should be faithful to the Lord. But these cultures that they're going to go in when he sends them to the promised land and gives them and drives out these cultures, these cultures are evil. If you do the history and you look at it, they are evil. They do evil things. This is not God giving, giving this land and driving out innocent people. No, they're, they're evil. And he says their iniquity is not yet complete. Their iniquity is going to be so complete that God is going to use Israel to drive them out. That's a huge part of understanding Joshua 
Judges, which we're going to talk about, and 1 Samuel. So he says, I'm gonna, I'm not, you're not going, but your family's going to go. And then verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. This is God sealing his covenant. I don't have time to walk through that today, but look into that. It's really interesting, but we don't have time to say it. It's just God sealing his covenant. Verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant, this is where we get the word, with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land, the land of Canaan, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephraim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites, also known as the Ites. All right, so I'm going to call them the Ites from here on out. So God makes this promise to them. This is what I'm promising you. This is what this really meant. I'm going to give you this land. And I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to use you to drive out evil people and bring judgment on my behalf. So that's the promise. We see it refined in Genesis 17, where God tells them this is an everlasting covenant. So here, let's understand what a covenant is. Really, covenants are, are simple. Really, a covenant is just a promise between God and his people, especially when God says, I'm, I'm going to make a covenant. They don't really have a choice to take the covenant. God says, but this is God, God making a covenant with them, a promise. Now, there are conditional covenants and unconditional covenants. And so let me give you an example. This is, this is an example of an unconditional covenant. Abraham came to the land. He says, if you come to the land, I'm going to give your family this land, and they're going to bless every nation on earth. That is going to happen. Doesn't matter what Israel does. It doesn't matter how they screw it up. God is going to give them the promised land, whether they hold on to it or not. He's going to give it to them, and God will bless every nation. Jesus Christ will come through the line of Abraham no matter what they do. That's with the, the smoking pot passing through the fire. That was God sealing the promise I'm going to do this. That's unconditional. But in this promise, they don't know this completely yet. There are conditional parts of this promise. We'll get to that in the book of Exodus. So here's what happens. God keeps every promise. Abraham does have a child named Isaac. And then Isaac has a child named Jacob. And God changes Jacob's name to Israel. And that's where we get the name of Israel. It was the grandson of Abraham. And, and, and Israel, Jacob, has 12 sons, and they become the 12 tribes of Israel. Like, all of the family tribes that in Israel all come from these. So you got Gad, and you got Manasseh, and you got Judah, and you got Benjamin. These are the tribes of Israel. So later, when we go down, these families are going to grow like crazy. Right now, they're just guys, and then they'll be just families, but they grow into these massive tribes, sometimes of more than 100,000 people. There's Jewish people to this day that say, at least, they can trace their line back to one of these tribes. Jesus was from the line of Judah. Paul was from the line of Benjamin? Benjamin, thank you. I didn't want to say that with confidence. Benjamin, right? So they all, that was a big deal, but you know, trace your line back to this. So God kept every promise. And what happens? The very short version, Joseph, his brothers, he's one of the 12 brothers, right, of Israel, of Jacob. They hate him. They, they sell him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. He grows in power in Egypt, becomes the second most powerful man in Egypt. The whole world runs out of fruit, food, food because of a drought. And so Joseph's brothers come to Egypt to get food, and they encounter their brother Joseph, who they thought was dead, and he's got the food, and he's got the power, and through a long story, they reconcile. As the Bible says, even what those brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. They reconcile, and Abraham's whole family comes down to live in Egypt. It seems like a happy ending. Man, they loved Joseph and his family in Egypt until they grew, and they grew, and they grew till they, till they became a people like the sand on the seashore, which is what God said he would do. And it freaked the Egyptians out. So they enslaved them. Because now they may have been 
the, the Jewish people may have outnumbered the Egyptian people. We don't know for sure, but they were a huge people. Maybe up to a million or two million people, depending on what you trust. Lots of Israelites. They enslaved them. And so they cry out to God. It's been 400 years, just like Genesis 15 said it would be. 400 years, they cry out to God, and God hears his people, and he sends plague after plague after plague after plague until the Egyptians, arguably the most powerful empire in the world, lets these slaves with no power at all go. And that's where we get the story of them crossing the Red Sea and God destroying the greatest army in the world. And they end up in the wilderness outside of Egypt, and they come to Mount Sinai. Take a breath. All right. So while up on Mount Sinai, Moses goes up on the mountain, and God gives, he, he goes into the glory of God, the presence of God, and God gives Moses the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law, which is actually a, further, a furtherance of the covenant with Abraham. This is really where we get the, the phrase Old Testament or the Old Covenant. It's because of the covenant made with Abraham and Moses, the Old Covenant law, the covenant made with them. And so that's where we're going to pick it up. They're in the wilderness. God is giving the law through Moses. Turn to Exodus 34. Just, we're in Genesis. Go right in your Bibles, one book, to Exodus 34. And in this part, God is going to make, help them further understand this covenant. And we're going to start getting into the conditional parts. There is conditions set on this covenant between God and his people. So in, Exodus, or in Genesis 34, we are going to read in verse 10 through 16. 10 through 16. I'll make sure everybody's there. I want us to read it together. Genesis 34. Thank you. Exodus 34. I'm even looking at it. It says Exodus. Exodus 34, 10 through 16. All right. Are we ready now that you're not flipping to Genesis? Okay. Let's start in verse 10. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as has, has not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among you, among among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do. Right? He's promising crazy miracles with them. Verse 11. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Take care lest you... Listen to this. is really important for the rest of what we're going to talk about. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. Listen, there's nothing wrong with making covenants. Right now, God makes covenants, and that, that's a big deal. Like, God made the covenant. But, like, listen, like, think of this. Like, United Nations is basically a covenant. We're agreeing with other nations that we will and won't do these certain things. And if someone doesn't do that thing, breaks the promise that they've promised, then the covenant is disbanded, right? And so people make covenants. It's not really the same thing as contracts, but they make covenants all the time. But this is different. This is God's made a unconditional and conditional promise with his people But he's saying, listen, don't make agreements. Don't make covenants. Don't do any of these things with the people around you. Because if you do, it's going to go really badly for you. And we're going to see, man, was God right? Well, like he's always right. Verse 13. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. For for you shall worship no other god for the Lord... For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, that's his name, capital J, Jealous, is a jealous God. So he's saying, tear down all of their idols. Do not worship their gods. You know, I once heard someone say, well, God's a jealous God, and if God can get jealous, then I'm not going to worship him, because he can't really be God. All right, when we get jealous, most of the time, that's a bad thing, right? But do you know who God is jealous of? His people. These other people are doing evil. And so God 
is a jealous God. God does not want you to worship other people. He, he doesn't want you to worship other gods because they're evil, because they have done evil, and because they are evil. And so when it says that God is a jealous God, God wants good for you. He wants you to do good. He wants you to experience good. And when you start worshiping false gods, you know what, you know what Scripture says you're really doing when you're worshiping false gods? That you're worshiping demons. They are demons masquerading as God. They're masquerading as light. And they're pulling you to evil and depravity and suffering and pain. And so God is jealous for you to worship him because he's good and righteous and loving and holy. We want God to be jealous for our worship because when we worship God, we have everything we ever, uh, will ever need. When we worship the world or we worship idols, we are pulled away into darkness. Verse 15. Don't worship them, verse 15. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. That's some pretty strong language, right? But remember, like God, Jesus describes us as his bride. And when you start thinking about like God loves us so deeply, those words, although harsh, show how seriously God takes this, doesn't it? And so he kind of lays out three really important things. The unconditional part is going to happen no matter what. As, as the Old Testament will talk about, God will protect his remnant, his people but we got to pay very close attention to the three things he kind of laid out as a part of the conditional part of this covenant. And it's one, you'll make no covenants, you'll make no treaties, you'll make no agreements with any of these nations. Their job is to drive them out or destroy them. That's it. No promises, no covenants. Two, tear down their idols. In other words, do not worship their gods and get rid of any evidence of their gods because they're false gods. They are not gods. And three, which one, this one might seem crazy, but he says, do not marry them. Now, if you're supposed to drive them out or destroy them, you can't marry them anyway, right? They're not going to be there to do that. But he says, do not marry them, for they'll pull your hearts away from me. Now, can we be haven't all of us seen that before in real life? Someone who's following Christ, growing in Christ, moving towards Christ, and then a person of the opposite sex comes into their life and becomes their obsession, can we just be honest, kind of becomes their God and pulls them away from the faith? pulls them away from truth, and all of a sudden that person is doing things that about six months ago they said they would never do, and they were totally against. Now all of a sudden they're, they're living a life like they don't even know Jesus. You've seen it before, haven't you? Yeah, me too. So God is not asking something ridiculous. It's just the difference is God sovereignly knows exactly what's going to happen if they do, if they do this. He knows exactly what's going to happen. Now, finally we get to Deuteronomy. So the first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch. They're kind of like the foundation of our entire faith. And then when you move out of the Pentateuch, you get to the historical books, and that's what 1 Samuel is. But before we get there, we want to look at one more passage, or two more passages in Deuteronomy. So turn to Deuteronomy 7. Just go right in your Bibles, a couple more books, to the last book of the Pentateuch. And we're going to look at this. We really get to see the conditional part of this covenant and what that really means. And it's, it is absolutely beautiful. And it's absolutely terrifying. So we're going to look at the beautiful part first, right? What God is promising them if they're simply faithful to God. Now, listen, God has never expected perfection. Never. He's always said, like, even follow law, but I'm full of grace and mercy. I love you. Like, like that, that part of God's character that I love so much when God declares his name, I'm full, I'm graceful and 
and merciful and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is who God is. So he's not asking them to be perfect. He's asking to follow me faithfully, that even when you mess up, come to me and I'll forgive you, right? So that's what we're seeing in Deuteronomy 7, where God's talking about faithfulness. In Deuteronomy 7, go down to verse 12. Deuteronomy 7, verse 12, and we're going to read through verse 16. Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 7, 12 says this. And because you listen to these rules, meaning the, the law of Moses, and keep them and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He's talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that he swore to your, fa- to your fathers to give to you, which is Canaan. Verse 14, you shall be blessed above all peoples. He means all peoples on earth. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and none of the evil diseases of Egypt, which you knew will inflict you, but he will lay them on all who hate you. And you shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you. Your eye, sh- eye shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. Do you read those promises? Like, it's kind of crazy, isn't it? I'm going to bless your life in the ways that you haven't even thought of. Like, you're not going to get sick. Every one of you are going to have children. Everyone that wants to have children. Your livestock are going to have children. That's a big deal with livestock. All your livestock are going to have children. Your, your, your wines and your vats and your crops, everything is going to work. And I'm going to turn all that sickness that would come to you onto your enemies. All it is is be faithful to me. Listen, God longs to bless them. He longs to bless you, church. Through faithfulness, he longs to bless them. He longs to faith. He he is a good God. He wants to do good to his children. That's what he wants. But he's also a holy God. And he won't stand for evil. And as I've said before, it it really takes the safety of the Western world and all the protections that we have to, to not want a God who punishes evil. But come from a place where injustice is rampant and the only hope you have is that God will make it right someday. Well, then we want a God of justice who stands up for what's right, who does good, and who hates evil, that hates the evil that has done, been done to me and will make up for it someday one way or another. We want that God. And so since God is holy, since God does punish evil, so that's what we're talking about in communion, right? That, that Jesus took the punishment for us on the cross when his body was broken. This is the flip side of this conditional promise. That's the blessing. But here's what happens if they are unfaithful. In Deuteronomy 8, so just go over to Deuteronomy 8. We're going to start in verse 17. Deuteronomy 8, verse 17. We're going to read verse 17 through 20. Verse 17 says this. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. And by the way, let's just sum up most of sin for all of us right there. Right? This is about me. And when God says wealth right here, I know we immediately start thinking millions of dollars. The wealth he's talking about is the wealth of the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, that they're going to go and they're going to have a home and crops and everything they need and everything that God is promising. Verse 18, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Now, 
Does that feel any way unclear to anybody in the room? Like God's making it really clear to them. And that's not the only time he says this. He says it over and over throughout the Pentateuch. And by the way, this is like one of the nicer versions of this. Like when God says, he starts laying out what's going to happen to you. Because here's what the promise is. If you're faithful to me, I'm going to guard you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to give you everything that you need. No one will be able to stand against you. And not only that, I'm going to do absolutely miraculous things to accomplish all those things. But what this promise is, is basically this. All God is really saying is, but if you defy me, if you turn to other gods, you'll no longer have my blessing, you'll no longer have my protection, and good luck to you. They're going into a land where they are going to be surrounded by enemies who are more powerful than them, who outnumber them, who they have no hope against unless God is on their side. As I said this kind of this morning, that's kind of a good place to be. Like in our lives, if we get to that place where we have no hope but God to make things right and then we see God come through for us, you want to talk about something that will increase your faith? In your weakness, God is strong. When you have no hope, God restores your hope. When you cannot find peace, God gives you peace. That is a powerful thing for your faith. And we're going to see for a time it's a powerful thing for the Israelites. It's a powerful thing for the Israelites. So that is the warning that God gives to them. So Here's where we kind of land. All the promises, all the mistakes, all the miracles, all of this kind of, kind of starts to come to fruition with some spies. So um, they finally get to the promised land, right? Every, God did miracles. He did miraculous things on Mount Sinai with Exodus, all those things. They get up to the land of Canaan, right up to the edge. And what they do is that Moses is lead, leading them, sends 12 spies into the land of Canaan. One spy from each tribe, all the 12 tribes. They go into the land of Canaan. They scope it out. They come back. And two of them are fired up. One is Caleb, faithful man, and the other one is Joshua. Remember Joshua, he becomes Moses' right-hand man, and the first historical book we're going to look at today is Joshua. So they come back and they're like, we found them, we know where they are, let's go. God's with us. Right? Does that remind you of anyone? We'll see it later for Samuel. David, when he's standing against Goliath. What are you all doing? Let's go. God's with me. I'm ready. Why are you standing here? Right? That's how these guys are. But then there was 10 other people. And what did they do? Oh, guys, you, they're, and they're, they're, all, they're talking to all of Israel, all the leaders of Israel. You have no idea. These people are huge. And they have steel weapons. And they have high walls. And they outnumber us like crazy. We can't go. We can't do it. We got to stay here. And so Moses and Caleb and Joshua were like, no, let's go. But the people rebel against them and say, we're not going. They're too powerful. We're all going to die. And then they say the words that you should never, they should never have said. And they said it multiple times. And God had patience. We'd be better off in Egypt. Man, we want to give them a hard time, but we are the same. God did so many miracles to get them to the point that they are. It's hard to keep track of them. And he's been so faithful to them, it's, it's almost unbelievable, even though, as God says, they're stiff-necked, right? They're stubborn. They've, God defeated, they did no fighting. God did, defeated the most, arguably the most powerful army in the world, and by the way, on the way to the promised land, we didn't talk about it, but they got attacked multiple times on the way there too. And one of those people that attacked him, God's like, oh, I'm going to get them someday. Don't you worry. Right? And we're going to see that. It's going to happen later. God's going to get them. Right? All of that, they get to the promised land. We can't go. And they won't go. So God says, fine. You're going to stay here for 40 years. And all of you that wouldn't go, you're all going to die. Joshua, Caleb, you're coming with me. All the rest of you, you're going to die off and your kids will go. They'll trust me. You're staying here for 40 years. 
Some, if, you read, if you read that out of context, it's like, God's mean. He's left them in the wilderness for 40 years. They refuse to go in after God did all of those things. So what happens? Those 40 years pass. They stay, stay in the wilderness all that time, and we come to the book of Joshua. We come to the book of Joshua. So Joshua, as you said, is the right-hand man of Moses. So after those 40 years, Moses was old, and Moses was about to die. And so he says, Joshua's going to take over for me, and he's going to lead you into the promised land. So if, we're gonna, if I was going to sum up Joshua kind of in one sentence, Joshua, this is what Joshua is. It, it's the blessing and the protection that comes with courageous, courageous obedience and faithful leadership. The blessing and protection that comes with courageous obedience and faithful leadership. And, and that leadership part's going to be important as we go through 1 Samuel. Because how faithful the people are is really important, and God's going to hold the people accountable Oh, but their leaders make so much difference. This book is convicting me. We need to be praying for our leaders, whether they're Christian or not, whether they're right, whether they're left, whether they're up, they're down, or they're barely alive. We need to be praying for our leaders. So that's what the book of Joshua is about. And so the book starts off with an absolute bang. They head into the promised land, and immediately they come up against one of the most powerful people, one of the most powerful cultures, Jericho. And I wish we had time to read Jericho. Go, go into Joshua and read the story of Jericho this week if you haven't. It is a famous walled city. They're known for being extremely powerful. If you remember, they march around the city seven days, the walls fall down, and they conquer the city of Jericho and burn it to the ground. And every, all of the ites go, What? You mean the God of, that destroyed Egypt, the people that God destroyed Egypt for have just taken down Jericho? Oh, no. And it says fear rolled through Canaan because the God that conquered Egypt had come and taken down Jericho. Awesome, right? Awesome. And that does not stop. They start taking down all the ites. Like Gergesites, Jebusites, Hivites, Canaanites, like they all start to fall and Israel starts to roll. And none of those battles they should have won. And there's a couple times where they were not being faithful. Guess what happened in that battle? They didn't win the battle. But when they were faithful to God and really listened to the voice of Joshua, who was extremely faithful to God, everything rolled on and it was amazing. And, and you know how God said, I'm going to do things like the world has never seen before? He did things like um, they needed to cross a river, so God just stopped it. For about a day, and they, they, they didn't just cross the river. They crossed on dry ground, meaning God dried up the ground, too, made it nice and flat for them. And you're like, okay, he kind of did that with the Red Sea. Okay, so he kind of, two times in the history, he parted, parted water like that, so they crossed. Like, how about this one? Joshua was fighting some of the ites and ran out of daylight, but he needed more daylight. So he said, God, keep the sun in the air. He didn't say, like, God, please. Like, God, we need more daylight. That day lasted 24 hours. It's the only time in the history that it's ever happened. But God kept the sun, and I don't even know how that, where we talked about it with Denver, like, how did that actually work, that it was daylight for 24 hours straight? But they wiped out that culture. They finished the battle because God kept the sun up for 24 hours for them, simply because Joshua asked. This is really what the Bible's promising us if we truly believe that God will do miraculous things for us, if we truly believe that he's this good, if we truly have real faith. God wants us to believe that he can do miraculous things for us. So in the end, they end up defeating virtually every one of these ites. Not all of them, but most of them. And then they get to a time of rest. They've been going for a, f a few decades, a couple decades. And they get to the point where they've, they've conquered most of the promised land. So during that time, Joshua starts giving over the inheritance to each family. Meaning they have the whole land of, of Canaan, right? They've, they've conquered probably, I don't know, 75, 80% of it. And so because of that, he's like, okay, I'm going to start allotting land to each of the families. So Gad... Gad's family, which might be 100,000 people, you, you get this section. And 
and Manasseh, you get this section, and Judah, you get this section. So he's saying, we still have to fight, and we have to finish this, but this is going to be your family so you can start cultivating the land, right? They don't want all the crop. They've conquered these people and all the crops to go bad and all the land to go bad. So they start cultivating, like, go there so you can start cultivating the land. Send your people there. So that's where we are going to, that's where we are in Joshua 23. So, babe, you want to come up? My wife's going to read Joshua 23 for us. Go ahead and turn to Joshua 23. We're at the end of Joshua's life, kind of like when Moses was at the end. He kind of, Moses kind of gave a declaration of this is how you move forward from here on out. Joshua's going to give his declaration of how they move on out now that he has, now that he has gone. So, yeah, there you go. So, we're going to read the whole, I know it's a long chapter, but stick with us because this really informs the rest of um, Judges and 1 Samuel. Go ahead, babe. Okay, Joshua 23. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and its heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes these nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land, just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God, for if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you, and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they will, shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And now I am about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded to you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. All right, thanks, babe. So that's a lot, right? But what's Joshua doing? He's just re- reiterating the covenant. He's just saying to them, and I love what, what he asked, because if you think about what actually happened, Israel was not a powerful nation. They, they don't even really have iron and steel weapons. They're coming in, and they're defeating all these nations that have more training. Like, listen, they're slaves that got set free. They don't have military training. They don't have the weapons these other cultures do. They're not organized like this. They don't have a king. They don't have, like, they have Joshua, right? They don't have all these things these other nations do, and they defeat every one of them. And there literally are stories where one man drives off a thousand. 
God did all of the things, and I love that. We don't process things like this, but this is who our God is. You hearing this? Every one of his promises held true. They were doing impossible things, and every one of his promises held true. God, church, God's still that same God. All these things that he's promising you, I think we read his word sometimes, and we think of it like God's trying to give us good advice. He's not giving us good, sometimes there's good advice in scripture, but it's not advice. God is promising you that he wants to do these things for you. If you say God it commands this or says he's going to do this, he is going to do it. We believe in faith. We walk in as if it's true. And God help us, helps us to understand that it is true. And I love how Joshua at the end of his life reminds them, like every one of them has come true. And also, like you, you, you read there, that he's like, it's, they're going to be a thorn in your side. No, he doesn't say a thorn in your side. They're going to be like thorns in your eyes if you turn from me. Yet, like, we're trying to understand, he's trying to get them to understand just how badly this is going to go if they turn from him. Because all he has to do is remove their protection. And remember, these are evil cultures. Some of them do things like child sacrifice and eat their young. And they do things like this. They're terrible And they'll do terrible things to Israel because they came in and took their land. They hate them. They're going to do terrible things to them if God removes his protection from them. And then Joshua kind of, I'm going to end with this because I just love it. Go to Joshua 24, verse 14 and 15. One of kind of like some of Joshua's last words, kind of one of his last encouragements and warnings. Joshua 24 and verse 14. We're just going to read 14 and 15. It says this, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fa- the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites. They're the Amorites again. Remember when we brought up Amorites all the way back in Genesis? Or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Ever heard that verse quoted? As for me and my house, you know, put it above your house. As me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I don't know if you saw it. It kind of brings it full, full circle. All the way back in Genesis 15, God said, oh, I'm going to bring judgment on the Amorites. And he just says, you're now living in the land of the Amorites because I used you to, to punish their sin, to drive them out, and give you th- this land because you're faithful to me and because I love you. So it kind of comes full circle there as Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So that's the, basically the end of Joshua. One of the very few people in Scripture, let this encourage you, he's one of the very few people in Scripture that we actually read about his faults. One time, he accidentally made a covenant with one of the cultures. They deceived him into a covenant. That's the only thing that I remember that Joshua did wrong. He was a righteous man. Now, Joshua's sinful. Like One of the most encouraging things about Scripture is Abraham, Moses, Paul, all of these people were not perfect. God is not looking for perfect people. He only works with imperfect people. But as far as Scripture is concerned, one of the closest that we can find, one of the most righteous we can find is Joshua. Is Joshua. He was faithful to the end. So, um, now we get to the book of Judges. And that's the, that's the, there's only one book before we get to 1 Samuel. So we get to the book of Judges. So one, before we kind of define what Judges is about, I want you to understand what a judge over Israel is. So just think of a judge over Israel as a civil and military leader. leader. That's what they did. They weren't kings. They weren't presidents. So you can kind of think of them like as a governor mixed with a general, Right? And so sometimes they, they led the army like Gideon. 
or sometimes they kind of led the army, but they, they kind of appointed generals. Like Deborah was, was also kind of a general, but she had Barak beside her to kind of lead the armies. And so they kind of did that together, right? But their military leaders. So what would happen is the 12 tribes would have disputes, and they would settle those disputes. With Gad would settle Gad's disputes. Manasseh would settle Manasseh's disputes. But sometimes they couldn't settle them. So they would come to the judge over all of Israel. They, and then the judge would make the ruling on whatever they need to make the ruling over, right? So they were the ultimate authority when it came to those things in Israel. Make sense? And so we get, dive into the book of Judges. And if Joshua is a reflection of just the blessing and protection that comes through courageous obedience, then Judges is a reflection of the consequences and just utter destruction and chaos that comes with rejecting God. It's a very tough book. Because right away, right out of the gate, they're faithful to what God has commanded and what Joshua sent them to do. They start attacking the Canaanites as God commanded them. But almost immediately, the cracks start to form. Very early on in the book, they start making covenants. They start making treaties and agreements with the people of the land. So instead of driving out all the Canaanites or the Amorites or the Philistines, they get to the point where they've won the battle then they make an agreement. And a lot of times it's not like they're enslaving them, but they make them work for them or whatever else. They make an agreement, we won't attack each other, right? Do you remember how God said like 16 times, do not do that? Because if you do that, it's going to go really badly for you. So they start making agreements with the nations around them instead of destroying them or driving them out. Then what we see is they begin to marry them. You put a beautiful woman in front of a guy, sometimes they lose their minds, right? I mean, seriously, women too, right? It's not, that's not one way, right? But they started to marry their daughters. Remember Exodus 34? If you marry them, they'll pull your hearts away from me towards other gods. What do you think happened when they started marrying them? Church, within two generations of Joshua, they were worshiping other gods. They were worshiping other gods like Baal. And sometimes people are like, what are the Baals? Like Baal, Baals used sometimes plural, sometimes singular, but it was basically the god of fertility and crops the God of sex and food. How easily do you think that was attractive to idiot people? Like, you, we're, we're going to let you worship God and sex and food. Does that sound good? Right? Especially if you have your spouse sitting there saying, hey, look, this is really good. Good. What we want to do is follow the desires of our heart. We don't think about the future. And they started following the desires of their heart. And what happened? These other cultures almost immediately started ruling over them because they're more powerful than them. Right? They've always been more powerful than them. And so you'll see through the book of Judges, they'll turn from God, they'll turn to false gods, and then all of a sudden the, the, the Canaanites or the Philistines have ruled over them for 20 or 30 years. These are the chunks that we're taking. So for 30 years, the Israelites were basically enslaved to this other culture. And then they'll be like the people in Exodus. They'll cry out to God, God, help us. They'll repent. They'll turn back to God. And then God will send them a deliverer. And not like a Messiah, but he'll send them people like Gideon or people like Deborah and Barak. And what they do is they turn the hearts of the people. Faithful leadership matters. They turn the hearts of the people back to God. All of a sudden, Israel starts winning all the battles. It's so weird. They, 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 they cast off the rule over them. They defeat these enemies. They start to attack them. And then they, again, almost destroy them, almost drive them out, but don't completely. And they make covenants with them and agreements. And listen, we could talk through it. Maybe you need to read the book of Judges. Just pray before you start reading the book of Judges. It's a horror show. I mean, I'm serious. Like, it's kind of funny, but you read the second half of Judges, and you're just like, how could this be? I'm going to say something bold here. 
I'm not God, and so I don't always understand. And like, if you've ever read the book, the, the story of Noah, it's kind of hard to fully wrap our minds around that God flooded the whole world, right? That's just a tough story. Like, it's not the children's story that we've all read, right? It's a hard story. But you read the second half in particular of Judges, and you're like, oh. When God said every inclination of their hearts was evil, all they did was evil all the time, you start really thinking of the depravity that comes when there is no goodness or righteousness, how ugly this world can really get. Then you start to think, oh, I, not that I say that it's okay, God makes his decisions, but oh, it starts to make a little bit more sense. And it just goes badly in Judges. Once in a while, there's a good judge, but most of the judges, like the later kings, had evil in their hearts, and they led the people towards false idols and evil, and it was ugly. Then we come to First Samuel. And it's 1130. I'll make this quicker than I was going to make it. But First Samuel takes place right after these two historical. It's the third historical book. And it's the time that the, the rule of the judges over Israel ends. In fact, Samuel is the last judge and is arguably the best judge. Samuel was a righteous judge. Not perfect. We're going to see through the book of Samuel. He was not perfect. But he was a righteous judge and he, let, and he led people um, to God. And so the book kind of starts off about Samuel. But really what, Je- what First Samuel is about is the rise of the first kings of Israel, Saul and David. Now the reason we walk through that history is we can look, like really what this book is about is God, re- the people rejecting God as their king and saying they want a human king. And God says, you do not want a human king. You want me. But God in his mercy gives them a king. It was like, it was like actually merciful that God gave them a king. But when we look at the actual story of all of Judges and all of Joshua, we start to understand why they wanted a king, right? Because these nations around them had kings, and they had lost their way. They stopped seeing God as their king. They, start, they, they forgot about the blessings that God promised to give as he ruled over them, and they saw these nations around them with kings, and these nations were conquering them, and these nations were winning battles, and these nations had kings that would fight for them and, and rule over them and point them in the right direction. So they were like, well, look, everything's going terrible for us. Why can't we have a king? And so you start seeing how ugly Judges was. You start to understand why they're crying out to be around the nations around them because they're already like the nations around them. They're already worshiping their gods. They're already marrying their women. They're already making covenants. They're already living amongst them when they were never supposed to live amongst them. Does that make sense? They weren't supposed to be their neighbors. But they are. And so they see what their neighbors have and they long for it. Is that not the human heart? Always longing. We talked about that with the kids this morning. Always longing for what we don't have. And so I'll close with this. This is where we got rejected, revealed, restored. Right? This story is about really how they rejected God when they asked for a king. And how badly that went for them. And it went badly. And so as we go through 1 Samuel, what we'll see is God will use these human kings to reveal to the people and reveal to us what we actually need. And it is not human leaders to be our answer. And then finally, God's going to, the last word is restore. As he brings David around, he's going to begin to restore his people back to him because David is a reflection. He's a man after God's own heart, but also they're going to see through David that he is still imperfect, that he doesn't have have it all together. So God is going to start pointing them towards what they really need, the day when they will be fully restored to them. What they really need, what they, what they really need is a true king, 
of true, of true righteousness, who can fulfill this everlasting covenant and be their everlasting king and that will fully restore them back to the rule of God and back to the presence of God. That's what 1 Samuel is really about. Church, that's what the Old Testament is really about. God's plan to restore those who've rejected him by revealing to them what they really need. And it's not the law and it's not a king. It's the king of kings. There's more to say, but I'm going to stop there. That's where we're going with 1 Samuel. I want you to pray that God would open your heart in this book of history because it's harder to find the things in, in history books that we really need to hold on to. But I want you to hear this. This is a book that dis- displays that part of God's character that we talked about, his steadfast love and faithfulness. No matter what you're going through, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter how bad our leader, good or bad our leadership is, God is faithful to his children. He is faithful to his covenant, his new covenant in Jesus Christ. He will be faithful to you even when you are unfaithful. Your God will be steadfast in his love and faithfulness for you. That is, in the end, what First Samuel is really going to display to us as we go through. Pray with me.